Hello, and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads, Season 5. Uh, sorry for the long break, everybody. There was just a lot of things going on, and really what I was doing is trying to find uh, another good book that you might like to hear. And what, what we have for this season is a book by Robert Felix called Magnetic Reversals and Evolutionary Leaps, The True Origin of Species. I was uh, sad to hear of the passing of Robert Felix, and uh, I believe it happened early this year. And I went to go find this book because I had read it before, and apparently it's no longer for sale on this website. And uh, I went to try to find it on archive.org, and I didn't see a copy there either. And apparently it's a very valuable book um, from what I could see. Fortunately, I was able to attain a copy, and um, I'm going to read it here for everybody's uh, enjoyment. Uh, I read this book a couple years ago, and I was absolutely floored by it. So we're going to uh, get right into it, and this episode is going to be the first two chapters. And before I get started, I just want to th say thank you for everybody who listens, everybody who uh, shares this with p other people, and if you feel like you'd like to support this podcast, um, you can go to anchor.fm prep. There's a support button, and for as little as 99 cents a month, you can help support this podcast, um, or even more if you'd like to do that too, uh, to have it stay on track, keep us on pace, and um, yeah, it's great. Thank you guys so much. Preface. During most of my first 50 years, I accepted the idea of evolution almost unquestioningly. I didn't see how any thinking man or woman could come to any other conclusion. But as I conducted the research for my first book, not by fire but by ice, a few bits of contrary information began seeping into my consciousness. I learned that many geomagnetic reversals, far more than could be dismissed as mere coincidence, had occurred in sync with mass extinctions and many of those magnetic reversals had occurred in sync with our planet's descent into catastrophic glaciation. I learned that paleontologists had discovered unexplained layers of carbon laying next to dinosaur remains, and that they had also found unexplained deposits of radioactive materials lying next to dinosaur remains. I learned that entirely new kinds of plants and animals appeared in the geological record almost immediately after extinctions, time after time after time. The new plants and animals had arrived as if from nowhere, with no known ancestors, with no intermediate life forms to explain their sudden presence. Where did all of these new plants and animals come from? And why did their arrival so often coincide with geomagnetic reversals? My curiosity was piqued. How is it that evolution is supposed to work? One tiny step at a time? Come on, I thought, let's get real. You don't cross huge chasms with timid little steps. You take one giant leap. Small steps are useless. What good is half an ear? What good is half an eye? Then one day I ran across the answer. What good is half a wing? Asked geneticist Richard Goldschmidt in his 1940 book, The Material Basis of Evolution, or Half a Jaw. If evolution works in tiny, imperceptible steps, asked Goldschmidt, why do we never find those intermediate stages in the fossil record? because they never existed. New species do not evolve slowly, said Goldschmidt, 
They arised abruptly. But why? I knew what I had to do. I had to continue my research until I could answer that question. And as many of the other geological questions as I could, point by point, in plain, everyday language, and thus was born magnetic reversals and evolutionary leaps. At the time I made that decision, I didn't realize how acrimonious the debate over evolution can become. It's the creeps versus the jerks. The creeps, so tubbed by the jerks, insist that evolution creeps along in a smooth, gradual process occurring over vast periods of time. The jerks, so dubbed by the creeps, maintain that evolution works suddenly, then it makes sudden leaps. That it makes sudden leaps. Overall, I agree with the jerks, but in my opinion, they have never presented a credible mechanism to explain their position, to explain what causes those leaps. In these pages, you will find such a mechanism. You will learn how geomagnetic reversals triggered those evolutionary jumps. You will learn that those jumps recurred according to predictable natural cycle, and you will learn that the next beat of that cycle is now due. I hope you enjoy reading magnetic reversals and evolutionary leaps as much as I enjoyed researching and writing. Note to my previous readers. I had originally included some of this writing in the first working version of Not by Fire but by Ice. In fact, the book had already gone through the editing process and was set to go to the printers. But at the last moment I decided that I was trying to cover too much territory and pulled those words out. Over the years I have added to my original research, but you still need some of the information found in Not by Fire but by Ice in order to make sense of what I am saying. I therefore hope you'll understand when you see some of those earlier words repeated here. To my wife Patty, who brings sunshine, love, and laughter into my life. Chapter 1. Suddenly. Remember Charles Darwin? He's the one who told us that evolution is a slow, stately, and orderly process plodding along so slowly that no one could hope to see it work in their lifetime. Darwin's theories of gradual evolution and natural selection are now regurgitated almost unthinkingly the world over. That's too bad, because Darwin was wrong. The idea of slow, gradual, imperceptible evolution is wrong, says paleontologist Robert Baker. The fossil facts do not read that way. Mass extinctions always come suddenly with no warning, says Baker. The population is then immediately replaced with entirely different species, with no forerunners. It's the best-kept trade secret of paleontology, wrote Stephen Jay Gould of Harvard, the evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of the branches. The rest is inference, however reasonable, not the evidence of fossils. Evolution works suddenly, said English paleontologist Hugh Falconer just one year after publication of Darwin's On the Origin of Species in 1859. Most of the time, said Falconer, species remain unchanged during the long intervals between sudden transmutation. Darwin's friend, Thomas Huxley, didn't believe in gradual evolution either. Evolution moves so fast, said Huxley, that the slow process of erosion and sedimentation rarely catches it in the act. New species appear suddenly, with no intermediate fossils linking them to any known ancestors. You have loaded yourself with unnecessary difficulty in adapting natura non facet saltum so unreservedly, said Huxley. Nature does not make leaps. After Huxley, 
anyone who dared entertain such a thought that nature does make leaps was labeled a saltationist. But Darwin wouldn't budge. The geological record is exceedingly imperfect, said Darwin. It's a book with few remaining pages, few lines on each page, and few words on each line. We do not see any intermediate change in the fossil record because... Not because change was abrupt, but because the intermediate steps were missing. Frustrated paleontologists kept taking pot shots at Darwin's theory, but it's like shooting into fog. Take the 1972 paper Punctured Equilibria by Niles Eldridge and Stephen Jay Gould. Most evolutionary change occurs suddenly, they said, like a punctuation mark in a sentence. Animals usually just sit there, not evolving at all. Nature does take leaps. Most new species appear with a bang, not a protracted crescendo, said Gould. Gradualism is not a fact of nature. A species seems to remain unchanged in the fossil record for millions of years, before abruptly disappearing only to be replaced just as rapidly with a species that is, though clearly related, substantially different. Nature does take leaps. Why keep hammering on this? Because if, if evolution take leaps, there must be a reason. That reason, you will soon see, can be linked to geomagnetic reversals and excursions. Let's look at the record. And on the next two pages, 22 and 23, there are some awesome graphs of timeline of uh, millions of years ago of the Earth and the different eras or epochs. Oh, like I said at the beginning of this uh, episode, this is a book that um, I think it's going to be hard for you to find. So getting images of this uh, may be hard. Uh, do your best, I would say, to to, uh, to find a copy of it. Um, because there are images and it's worth seeing. On with the story. During the first three and a half billion years of life on our planet, Earth's inhabitants were little more than connected chains of atoms floating around in a primordial soup of amino acids and other carbon-based chemicals. Scum, as one scientist called them, smears, said another. Transforming themselves into jellyfish-like animals with no bones and no shells, the smears evolved into squishy blobs with no resemblance to any known organisms dead or alive. Squishy blobs and algal mats, thin layers of pyrocratic algae, which trap and bind sediment, were the highest forms of life on Earth. Did any extinctions occur during these billions of years? Almost certainly. But how do you find a squishy blob encased in a rock more than a billion years old? <clears throat> With no hard parts, such blobs almost never appear in the record. The first extinction that we're sure of, therefore, which apparently victimized only algae, took place about 650 million years ago. The Cambrian Explosion. For all intents and purposes, though, life on Earth began about 580 million years ago at the beginning of the Cambrian period, when new life suddenly exploded across the Earth. A dizzying array of new organisms appeared in the geological record as if from nowhere. An astonishing burst of shelled forms took place, and virtually all major life forms of animal life, including the ubiquitous trilobite, suddenly appeared. Trilobites were distant cousins of today's horseshoe crab. 
Called the Cambrian Explosion, the abrupt change from simple life forms to more advanced was a critical turning point in the history of life. No one knows how or why it happened. What we do know is that the pattern has always been the same, sudden, always sudden. Look at the Ordovician, when jawless fish with no known ancestors suddenly appeared, or the Silurian, when algae crawled out of the sea and onto the barren ground, or the Devonian, when coniferous trees suddenly appeared as did ferns seemingly out of thin air. At the same time, ammonites spread through the seas, along with ever more bizarre type of giant armored fish sporting bony plates on the outside of their bodies. Why haven't sharks evolved? So many new kinds of fish appeared in the Devonian that it's called the Age of the Fishes. Sharks appeared suddenly. The first amphibian, Ichthyostiga, crawled out of the water and onto the land. Sharks pose a problem for Darwinian believers. Today, sharks are almost identical to those of 370 million years ago. If evolution is the only explanation, then why haven't sharks evolved into something quote-unquote better? Then, just as it looked as if the fishes had conquered the land, came yet another mass extinction leading to the Carboniferous. New kinds of ammonites made their debut. An insect life exploded across the planet. 15 new insect families, that's families, not species, suddenly arrived on the scene. And yet there's no indication of their origin. Insects similar to present-day cockroaches, grasshoppers, and mantids suddenly populated the globe, along with primitive forms of mayflies and dragonflies with wingspans approaching three feet. And the cockroaches? Squash them with the sh your shoe? Forget it. At 18 inches long, carboniferous cockroaches were longer than your shoe. Sea cads, similar to today's sago palms, popped out of the ground, and the first primitive reptile suddenly appeared. And don't forget the coal. So much coal mysteriously appeared during the carboniferous that we call it the coal age. Whatever happened to slow, stately progression toward perfection? And that's the end of chapter one. Chapter 2 Happy is the man that findeth wisdom, and the man that getteth understanding. Words in the hung in words in the hymn sung at Charles Darwin's funeral. Chapter 2 Life of a Soldier Whatever happened to slow, stately progression towards perfection? There's no such thing. Geological change always comes in spurts, said British geologist Derek A. Derek V. Ager. The history of any part of the earth, like the life of a soldier, consists of long periods of boredom and short periods of terror. Is there a gap in the geological record? No, says paleontologist Kenneth Hugh, blasting Darwinian theories. There is no gap. Many groups appeared suddenly not because of the incompleteness of the geological record, but because they did appear suddenly. New Kind of Ammonites Following the Carboniferous extinction came the Great Permian, the granddaddy of all extinctions. Ammonites went reeling, only two families survived, and early reptiles took a beating. Trilobites completely disappeared, as did Graptolites, vanishing with no known descendants. 
Graptolites were sea-dwelling animals that formed colonies on floating stalks. Even insects. Eight of the 27 order of insects went extinct at the Great Permian Extinction. And that's from Labandaria and Sipakosi, Science, 16 July 1993. Drastically, different kinds of life quickly invaded the seas. Like fresh troops sent into battle to relieve combat-weary veterans and entirely new kinds of ceratids suddenly appeared. They enjoyed an explosive radiation in the Triassic only to be almost completely decimated at the end of the period. Then came the diminutive Thicodent, a smallish animal resembling a big pheasant, which strutted around on two bird-like legs. Who would have dreamed that these insignificant little creatures would be the forerunners to the great Jurassic dinosaur? After yet one more extinction in the mid-Triassic, turtles and crocodiles suddenly appeared. Then Pow, another mass murder, and the curtain fell on the Triassic. Only theocadent families, and there had been many, went extinct. When the curtain rose again, the world was an empty stage. But a new cast of characters quickly jumped into the limelight. Frogs, toads, and salamanders suddenly appeared with no identifiable ancestors, and entirely new kinds of ferns developed almost overnight. As for the dinosaur, it was the golden age of giants, said paleontologist Robert Baker, as hordes of dinosaurs burst out of their triassic bounds and wave after wave of ever larger species filled the land. But did they evolve? A resounding no twiddling their evolutionary thumbs. Sifting through a 250-foot layer of Morrison formation at Como Bluff, Wyoming, Baker dug through strata representing well over one million years. He followed brontosauruses through hundreds of thousands of breeding cycles and through major climatic changes. There was absolutely no evidence for continuous evolutionary change, said Baker. <clears throat> they just sat there, twiddling their evolutionary thumbs. When they finally changed, they did it incredibly fast, growing 10% bigger all at once. Allosaurus impressed Baker even more, ballooning in size by almost 50%. Then came another mass murder, and the first great age of dinosaurs came to an end. But the battered dinosaurs could claw their way back to Dominion one last time during the Cretaceous. Once again, entirely new kinds of ammonites fought their way to prominence. Fish-eating, sea-going lizards suddenly appeared, and sea turtles, almost as big as Volkswagen, swam into the scene. Where in the world did they come from? No one knows. Abominable angiosperms. And where did the flowers come from? Angiosperms, flowering plants and hardwood trees, appeared immediately following the end Jurassic. Enjoying an explosion of diversity, they quickly formed great forests of deciduous, broad-leafed trees across the land becoming the dominant vegetation and the main fodder of vegetarian dinosaurs. And yet flowering plants had never before existed on the face of the earth. Poor Darwin. This one had him buff buffaloed. He considered the sudden arrival of angiosperms an abominable mystery. Marine life expanded to as pelagic carbonate organisms, floating ocean animals, burst out in an immense biological explosion all over the world. An invisible hand of creation, says paleontologists, must have been a work. Rudistids were common. The reef builders of their time, the rudist clam, looked like an oyster pretending to be a coral, said paleontologist David Raup. Other ocean dwellers, such as 
Brazoans, Brachiopods, and Foraminifera, Plankton, became healthy, numerous, and vigorous. There is nothing, nothing in the fossil record to indicate that their end was near. Then disaster struck again. With more than 70% of all sea-dwelling animals going extinct at the end of the Cretaceous period, Whatever hopes the dinosaur had of surviving were shattered as the relentless motor of extinction surged around the globe. Ammonites were simply massacred, and insects again almost annihilated. The Fern Spike North America's huge forests disappeared in less than one year, with nearly every kind of plant from Siberia to Alaska going extinct or becoming almost totally different. Angiosperms disappeared almost overnight. Magnolia trees, or something similar, vanished in a single growing season. In four to six weeks, it said paleobotanist Jack Wolf of the U.S. Geological Survey, the only things that survived were the ferns. Fern spores suddenly made up almost all of the assemblage. It's called the fern spike, and it proves that the extinction occurred suddenly. It was an ecological St. Valentine's Day massacre, said Stephen J. Gould of Harvard, the ecosystem totally collapsed. Think of the disaster we would face today if angiosperms were to disappear. Almost everything that we and our mammalian relatives eat is an angiosperm, including corn, wheat, tomatoes, onions, cucumbers, squash, beans, and most of the berry-producing bushes and shrubs. Leeks, broccoli, potatoes are angiosperms, as are maples, oranges, peaches, pecans, and all the other broadleaf trees. More than 257,000 kinds of angiosperms exist on our planet. How do you feed a 50-ton dinosaur body when all of the food is gone? For that matter, how do you feed a 100-pound human body when all of the food is gone? Not only at the end Croatius Every geological era shows dramatic changes in plant life at the transition from one period to the next, with many plant forms completely disappearing. Why didn't the seeds simply sprout back up in the same old ways as before? Some seeds must have been buried in the ground. What about the roots? Have we ever tried to eradicate blackberry bushes? Have we ever tried to eradicate dandelions, Bermuda grass? Don't blame forest fires either. Most plants make fabulous comebacks after a fire. Did something happen to change the genetic makeup? The answer has to be yes. No known ancestors. Immediately following the end Cretaceous, primitive birds enjoyed a surge of development, with large flightless birds like today's ostrich suddenly appeared. Tree sloths, armadillos, and anteaters saw dramatic development, as did egg-laying mammals such as the platypus and the Echidnor. Echidnor. Other mammals, until then not much bigger than a house cat, took off in rapid and spectacular diversification, all with no known ancestors. Sea dwellers enjoyed the same fate. 21 of the 27 species of lampshells, brachiopods, were completely obliterated at the KT boundary, only to be suddenly replaced by 24 entirely new species. Doesn't it seem odd that about the same number of new species would replace the old, though totally different, says David Raup, 
the number of species has remained remarkably consistent for almost 600 million years. Gordian Knot of Geology The new animal shells were shaped drastically different from the old, and yet there had been no time for evolution. It's one of the Gordian Knots of Geology, said William Berggren of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. The new lampshells were so different that it should have taken considerable time for their evolutionary development. But that's not how the record reads. The lampshells changed almost immediately. Same with the foraminiferous. Forams had evolved rapidly and were at the zenith of their development, said Brigrin. There was no sign of senility, no thinning of the ranks until suddenly, at a boundary so sharp you can mark it with the razor, all Cretaceous forms disappeared. Sediments of the two periods are separated only by the fish clay, which contains no form fossils. A half inch thick layer of clay. Same in the Gubbio limestones. Forms had been so prolific that their skeletons combined with the chalky secretions of tiny plants known as nanoplankton made up the bulk of encretaceous sediments. Directly above the limestone is a layer of barren clay less than half an inch thick. Like Denmark's fish clay, the gubbio clay looks like the sediment of a sterile ocean with almost no kinds of fossils. On top of the clay is limestone again, but this time the limestone was made of extremely small forms. Microscopic, the new forms are only one-tenth the size of the ones they replace. What? One-tenth the size? If that should happen to us, the tallest basketball player in the world would be nine inches tall. Shaquille O'Neal the size of a Barbie doll? That's a drastic change. According to paleontologist Gerda Keller at Princeton University, some of those new forms were only one-twentieth the size of the old ones. Mike Tyson the size of an angry mouse standing on its hind legs? What time is there for evolution when the only thing that separates the new fossils from the old is a thin layer of clay? A half inch thick layer of clay could be deposited in a matter of months or days or in one stormy afternoon. Other new animals also appeared. Hooved mammals such as deers, horses, cattle, and sheep galloped into the scene, while spanking new marine mammals including sea lions, baleen whales, toothed whales, seals, small porpoises, and dolphins joined the escalating evolutionary battle. Nose-twitching, fur-bearing, mouse-like mammals scampered across the land, and modern bird orders, along with mammalian bats, suddenly flew through the skies. After yet another massive extinction about 37 million years ago, gorillas, chimpanzees, and monkeys swung into view. Hens and rabbits suddenly appeared, and giant ground sloths bigger than an elephant lumbered into the picture. Pigs, bears, and for the first two dogs and cats, elbowed their way into the ranks, along with a giant, no-horned rhinoceros standing two stories tall at the shoulder. They all arrived suddenly, with no similarity to the animals they had replaced. The theory of the survival of the fittest calls for competition, with the best man winning. But there is no competition, no battle, no culling out of the sick or old, no superior forms coming along to shove aside inferior or incapable forebears. There was nothing new about there was nothing about the new arrival scientists insist that made them any better than the old ones. New newcomers arrive fully developed. We have no evidence whatsoever, not a shred, that losers in the Great Decimation were systematically inferior in adaptive design to those that survived. 
said Stephen Jay Gould. None of these ancient groups shows any signs of anatomical insufficiency. The new species simply arrived fully developed, tossed into the ring with no fanfare. Fully developed. How is a poor, bewildered, just the facts, sir, just the facts scientist supposed to explain it? It's as if the very act of extinction somehow leads to entirely new forms of life. It's more akin to the biblical sense of creation than to Darwinian evolution. The Grim Reaper kept swinging his deadly Sith, making it another 70% sweep just 2 million years ago in the beginning of the Pleistocene. An entirely new batch of animals suddenly appeared. Two elephants and hippopotamuses tromped across the land, zebran horses and antelope bounded into the fray, along with musk oxen, beaver, reindeer, lemmings, and foxes, followed by the woolly rhinoceros, woolly mammoths, mastodons, moose, saber-toothed cats, and the great dire wolf. Did you know that all of those animals suddenly arrived suddenly within the last two million years, with no time to evolve? Among the many species of mammals now existing in Europe and Asia, all but six appeared during the past two million years, with no time to evolve. Did you know that we, anatomically modern humans, are blindingly new, that we've only existed for only 200,000 years or so? 20 years ago, scientists thought we had existed for only 50,000 years. 200,000 years, and, and we have not a shred of evidence for any genetic improvement since then, said Stephen J. Gould. I suspected that the average Cro-Magnon, properly trained, could have handled computers with the best of us. And for what it's worth, Gould added, they had slightly larger brains than we do. We've grown from perhaps 100,000 people with axes to more than 4 billion with bombs, rocket ships, cities, televisions, and computers, and all without substantial genetic change. Where is evolution? Bigger animals savaged. Finally, 11,500 years ago, at the end of the last ice age, history repeated itself again. And again, the larger animals were savaged, with some 70% of the megafauna t taking it on the chin. Mammoths, mastodons, saber-toothed cats, along with 40 million other animals, and possibly much of the human race, disappeared in a geological instant. But for some reason, the same animals and plants that died in the north continued to thrive in the south. For some reason, the killer showed more compassion in Africa and South America. So what does this tell us? It's high time that we admitted that the Darwinian theory of slow, stately evolution is a myth. The change comes fast and furious, and almost always arrives on the heels of a mass extinction. And that's the end of chapter 2, and also the episode of this season, Magnetic Reversals and Evolutionary Leaps, The True Origin of Species by Robert Felix. Um, thank you for tuning in again. Uh, if you appreciate and enjoy this podcast, please share it with people who are like-minded or maybe even people who are not like-minded uh, who want to know about this. And if you are feeling generous and would like to support the podcast, head over to anchor.fm prep and uh, look, find the uh, support button. And for a little as 99 cents per month, you can help contribute to make this podcast a continuing part of our lives. Thanks so much, everybody, and we'll see you soon.